one of the great urban legends of London. That nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down, supposedly refers to a moment when an actual bunch of Vikings attacked London, tore down the bridge and took the city. This theory is passed from website to website, its validity seemingly lying in the fact that it's quoted again and again and again, even occasionally making its way into print. But is it actually true? More than that, where does the idea come from? What evidence is there to support it? And what evidence is there to suggest that it didn't happen? What follows is a close examination into the origins of this amazing urban myth, and simply ask the question, did London Bridge actually fall down? And why do most popular sources say it happened in or around the year 1013? If you have a few minutes, I will try and explore this surprisingly complicated subject and do it some justice. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to the 29th chapter of the story of London. London Bridge Stands. Without getting bogged down with stuff, let's get straight to the heart of this issue. Where on earth does the story of Viking warriors pulling down London Bridge and taking the city sometime in the 11th century, which then goes on to inspire a children's nursery rhyme, actually stem from? Well, to be blunt, a poem. And not just an ordinary poem either. It comes from the Heems Klingler of Snorri Sturluson. The what? Alright, get comfy for a moment and I will try to explain. What follows is a nice, simplified version of what it is and why it's important. Now, sometime before the year 1241, so 800 years ago from our time, but at least 200 years after the dates we're talking about, the good Christian people of Iceland would try and while away their long winter nights and be entertained until bedtime, as you do. And it appears that they like nothing better in those seemingly endless icy evenings than to gather in a warm room, snuggle up under furs, and listen to a nice bit of Icelandic poetry. And the preferred form of poetry was the sagas of their ancient ancestors, their distant pagan Norwegian Viking forebears. Now, sagas are a whole art form unto themselves, and in the realm of skaldic poets, the Icelandic version of William Shakespeare was this man called Snorri Sturluson. His work is stunning. It can be gripping and exciting, at terms funny and tragic. Snorri Sturluson became synonymous with the epic sagas of the ancient Vikings. Rightfully, his poetry is accepted as one of the great works in world literature. And I will not hear a single bad thing said about the Icelandic sagas except when it comes to historical accuracy. Look, you have to understand, when we tell a story about the past, here and now, in the 21st century, we tend to get all up in the idea of maintaining historical accuracy. We love to know what actually happened in the past. And there exist entire websites and YouTube vlogs and, and podcasts like this, whose primary attraction is that they describe what actually happened in the past, 
compared to what folks kind of think happened in the past. I mean, me doing this is part of the process. I, I, I'm simply telling the story of London, which should be a nice, easy narrative version of events. I just describe what happened, but what adds hours to the time it takes me to write each and every episode is I constantly ask myself, am I being accurate? Have I missed anything? Snorri Sturluson never really bothered with such dilemmas. For Snorri, his motivation was always, does this make an exciting story for my audience? And as such, his description of those ancient sagas, while incredibly highly entertaining, they were never intended to be seen as accurate versions of past events. If Snorri Stillerson were alive today, he would not be making award-winning documentaries for the BBC, you know, stern voices narrating in between interviews with eminent historians. No, he would be making highly enjoyable dramas for Netflix, to be blunt. So when Snorri Stillerson needs to invent something to make a story better, he just will. And he was very good at repackaging and reinventing new material for his sagas. And if you want an idea of just how good Snorri Sturluson was at creating new stuff, consider this. When he was describing the old pagan beliefs of his Norwegian ancestors, he realized that his ancestors didn't have a figure like the devil. Oh, they had big primal evil characters, but there wasn't a devil. And his Christian Icelandic audience really kind of needed a Lucifer figure that they could identify as the bad guy. So, basically, Snorri took a minor deity who was only worshipped in the far, far north of Norway. He revamped him. He gave him all the best lines. He made him the Viking version of Lucifer and allowed him to, to become the star of all the sagas. And it's a measure of how good he was that all of us have heard of the figure of Loki, have we not? So keep in mind, Snorri Sturluson could and would make up stuff just to tell a cracking story. Which leads us to the Hins Kringla. It's basically one of his major works. And most of it is given over to the saga of a whole bunch of kings from their Icelandic shared collective Norwegian past. So included in there we see Olaf Tryggvason's saga and Harold Fairhair's saga and Harold the Goods and more figures that have come up in, in this podcast. And right in the midst of all of this, the largest entry in the Himskringla is the entry for one King Olaf II, Olaf Haraldsson. Olaf Haraldsson would one day be posthumously granted the title of King of Norway and he'd also be posthumously granted the title of saint. And Saint Olaf is still the patron saint of Norway. Olaf Haraldsson was to play a major role in Scandinavian politics and also play a role in English politics. And it is in Snorri Sullivan's account of Olaf's life that this whole theory about London bridges falling down coming from a real-life Viking attack begins. See, in Snorri Sturluson's highly entertaining saga, it refers to a moment when Olaf Haraldsson was in England and also, lo and behold, involved in an attack upon London. So King Olaf's saga describes the attack upon London and it describes the following tactic used by this wily Viking. Quote, King Olaf ordered great platforms of floating wood to be tied together with hazel bands 
and for this he took down old houses, and with these, as a roof, he covered over his ship so widely that it reached over the ship's sides. Under this screen he set pillars so high and stout that there was both room for swinging off their swords, and the roofs were strong enough to withstand the stones cast down upon them. Now, when the fleet and men were ready, they rode up along the river. But when they came near the bridge, they were cast down upon them so many stones and missile weapons, such as arrows and spears, that neither helmet nor shield could hold out against it. And the ships themselves were so greatly damaged that many retreated out of it. But King Olaf and the Northmen's fleet with him rode quite up under the bridge, laid their cables around the piles which supported it, and then rode off with all the ships as hard as they could down the stream. The piles were shaken in the bottom and were loosened under the bridge. Now, as the armed troops stood thick up of men upon the bridge, and they were likewise many heaps of stones and other weapons upon it, and the piles under it being loosened and broken, the bridge gave way, and a great part of the men fell into the river, and all the others fled, some into the city and some into Southwark. Thereafter, Southwark was stormed and taken. Now when the people in the city saw that the river Thames was mastered, and that they could not hinder the passage of ships into the country, they became afraid and surrendered the city. Unquote. That is epic stuff, is it not? What's significant, however, is that most translations of the saga end this story with a little bit of poetry. Remember, Snorri Sturluson was writing about events 200 years before he was born, so he would include characters who were poets to say poetic things on behalf of Snorri to reflect upon what just happened. And apparently, according to the saga, Olaf Haraldsson had a resident poet travelling around with him who would compose victory songs for Olaf after he won each of his battles, a man called Uttar the Black. So, after the description of Olaf tearing down London Bridge, Snorri Sturluson adds the following, quote, So says Uttar the Black, London Bridge is broken down, gold is won and bright renown, Shields resounding, war horns sounding. Hild is shouting in the din, arrows singing, mail coats ringing. Odin makes our Olaf win. Unquote. And there it is. London Bridge is falling down. Okay, it says broken down, but the line has it. Right in the middle of this lovely version of King Olaf's saga, where he wins a battle against London Bridge there is what appears to be the basis of the nursery rhyme. Sounds awesome, does it not? And I mean, it is awesome. It's a stirring tale. I adore it. And this is where everyone gets the idea that the nursery rhyme is based upon real-life events, remembering a great victory for the Vikings, and that this has passed down all the centuries since then as a children's song. And it all makes sense if you just stop there. But if you read on from that part, oh, it gets a bit more interesting. Very few people ever bother to quote what the Heemskringler says directly after that version of London Bridges falling down. That was only the first half of the victory poem recited by Uta the Black. He then says, quote, King Æthelred has found a friend, brave Olaf, will his throne defend? 
in bloody fight, maintain his right, win back his land with blood-red hand, and Ethelred's son upon his throne replace Edmund, the star of every royal race. Unquote. So, wait a minute. According to the saga, Olaf Haraldsson is attacking London, but he's supposedly a friend of King Ethelred at the same time. Eh? Okay, what's going on? When we left the story of London in the last chapter, back with Sven Forkbeard leading an army of Danes marching towards London, remember? We need to pick up the story from there and kind of jump ahead a little, as this will explain what the story in King Olaf's saga was trying to tell. And it will allow us place stuff into context based on the real-life events going on around the supposed saga. The King of Denmark, Sven Forkbeard, had launched a bona fide invasion of England in the year 1013, trying to take the country over. So as 1013 was coming to a close, you had this big Danish king with an army in the north, and everywhere he went, the rather craven and cowardly nobles of England basically surrendered to him. Almost the entire nation seemed to have given up without a fight, everywhere it seems, except London. London defied this Danish king. King Æthelred fled there, determined to make his last stand, and remember he wasn't alone as Thorkill and his Vikings were there as well, about to fight alongside both the king and London against Sven Forkbeard. And supposedly included in the ranks of those Vikings is one Olaf Haraldsson. So this is where the idea of Olaf Haraldsson being King Æthelred's friend and being willing to defend his throne comes from in the poem by Snorri Sturluson. Here, 200 years after the event, this Icelandic poet got that detail right. It does appear to be accurate. Olaf probably would have been fighting off Vikings on behalf of the king and his son Edmund Ironsides, so it could be true. But if Olaf is on Æthelred's side... Why is he attacking the bridge? To understand that, we need to talk about what's going to happen in the future. You see, King Sven Forkbeard is going to attack London. And just like the last time he attacked London, about a decade earlier, London is going to kick his ass. Defeated, but still holding all the cards politically, Sven Forkbeard would then retreat get the last of the English lords and nobles to surrender to him out over in the West Country. And then King Æthelred was going to realise his kingdom was now just one town. His regime was no longer viable. King Æthelred would eventually flee to Normandy, where his brother-in-law and frenemy, Richard II, the Duke of Normandy, would grant him asylum and King Sven Forkbeard was declared King of England for about 12 weeks, and then he died, which was useful from an English point of view. And while his son Canute tried to claim the throne, the English nobility decided that they really wanted Æthelred back, so invited him back, made him the king again, and Canute had to retreat back to Denmark for a few months to reconsolidate his forces. And this is where the great saga from Snorri Sturluson comes in with its story. See, that attack upon London, where Olaf tears down London Bridge, is, according to the saga, 
caused because London was still under the control of the followers of Sven Forkbeard when King Aethelred was restored to power. Aethelred simply wanted his city back. So when he returned, Olaf Haraldsson was there ready to tear down the bridge and take it for King Aethelred. That's what the saga is describing. That's the exact attack. An attack that took place and could only have taken place in the year 1014. And according to it, Olaf tore down the bridge, regained London for the king, and then Olaf stuck around to defend the king, and when he died and that Canute character returned, Olaf was clearly on the side of Ethelred's son, Edmund Ironsides, in the ensuing war for the throne of England. So that's where the whole thing fits within the historical context. The attack, the bridge being torn down, and the nursery rhyme based upon those events. However, if we were to accept that the nursery rhyme was inspired by the Norse saga and that the Norse saga was based on those series of real-life events, then there are three immediate problems we have to face. One, we have no record of London being occupied by men loyal to Sven Forkbeard. London had only surrendered to Sven after Ethelred had fled to Normandy. And there is no record of partisan forces within the city who were supportive of the Danish king or that Forkbeard had the time or the resources to occupy London. Secondly, we know that Sven's men mostly relocated to Gainsborough after he died because they all gathered there to support his son Canute. And finally, there is no record of a battle in London to retake the city anywhere else. There are many records of attacks upon London from the years 1009 until 1017, but nothing in the year 1014. So maybe Snorri Sturluson just made that bit up entirely. And on top of that, there's an additional problem that you'd get if you say the saga inspired the nursery rhyme. See, the description of that epic battle on the River Thames, that isn't the only battle described in the opening part of King Olaf's saga. There are about 14 of them, and they follow a sequence. And more than that, the sequence seems to make sense when compared to historical records. After the third battle, for example, it describes Olaf joining forces with... Thorkill the Tall. So here we see the saga reinforce events we're fairly sure were happening on the ground. And then comes the sixth battle, the battle for London, and it describes King Aethelred actually trying unsuccessfully to take Southwark first from the Danes and him sitting down with Olaf and Olaf coming out with his plan to tear down the bridge. And well, I read you that sixth battle. And that all takes place after King's Forkbeard had died, so we can date that to 1014. And all is fine until we get to the 8th battle. So by the 6th battle, Olaf is working for the king and helping him defend his throne. But at the 8th battle, Olaf is suddenly attacking Canterbury and taking it. And that reveals the issue with the poem and allows us actually to get a much firmer footing on dating the poem and dating the events within it because we know there was an attack upon Canterbury by the forces led by Thorkill the Tall. And like the poem says, they took the town and they looted it. They even captured the Archbishop of Canterbury himself. I talked about this in a previous chapter. It was a big thing. It is the only successful raid on Canterbury around this time. 
and above all, it happened in the year 1011. Back in 1011, Olaf and Thorkill were not on King Aethelred's side. They were busy attacking Aethelred's forces across England. Back in 1011, Olaf was 100% the enemy of England. More than that, back in 1011, Thorkill and Olaf were still three years away, not only from swapping sides, but also from helping Aethelred regain the throne after Forkbeard died. And as well as that, the saga then goes on to describe Olaf rampaging across England and having a whale of a time looting everything that wasn't nailed down, which we know from the historical record is exactly what the Yom's Vikings did from the years 1010 to 1012. So based on that, the saga sequence doesn't make any sense. The description in the Heimskringla clearly doesn't match the historical record and leads us to the conclusion that the Heimskringla was one of those based on true events type tales, a whole incident, just one of those entertaining things Snorri Sturluson made up to make his story of King Olaf more exciting. Hmm. Except, you know, there is a way it could match the historical record. Yeah, look, maybe all Snorri did was mess up the order of things as all, well, but the gist of the story is right. Simply put, the sixth battle should come much, much later and be located after the 14th battle or something. That remains a distinct possibility. Or the battle could be in the right place and time according to the saga and the historical record. It's just that at the time, Olaf was fighting against King Aethelred. See... As I covered in a previous chapter, there is this amazing six-week period in the year 1009, where Thorkill the Tall and his Yom's Vikings, including Olaf Haraldsson, we must assume, had just started their huge raid upon England. They went on a big pillage around the Hampshire region, gathered up all their loot on the Isle of Wight, and sailed back around the coast and set up somewhere in Kent. And we don't know where exactly in Kent. Now, it could have been the Isle of Sheppey, and it could also have been the Blackheath Greenwich region. We know that a few years later, these Vikings based themselves in Blackheath and Greenwich, and that could have been their base all along, which would have made their campaign against London much more interesting and intense, don't you think? Now, in that previous chapter, I went on about the campaign, this six weeks where the Yom's Vikings were on the River Thames, and I described it as a series of battles between the fleet of the Yom's Vikings and that leftover English fleet based in London. I described it as a river campaign, which London won. But while never said explicitly, could the Vikings, during that campaign, have actually attacked London? or actually attacked London Bridge, specifically? And the answer is maybe. We know the records say that when the Vikings went on the offensive, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle actually says, quote, and oft they fought against the city of London, but glory be to God, yet it standeth firm, unquote. That standeth firm suggests to me they did actually attack the city itself. And we know that Snorri's saga describes the Viking ships being badly damaged. 
and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the six-week campaign was so bad for the Vikings that their ships were damaged and they had to spend the rest of the winter repairing them. And then in the spring when they were, the Vikings went after easier targets. So what if the description of the Sixth Battle of Olaf Haraldsson in the Heimskringla was actually a description of a failed attempt to take out London Bridge in the winter of the year 1009. Sometime that November or early December, Olaf Haraldsson led a force of Vikings and attempted to pull down London Bridge. That would make sense. If we follow that explanation, we can see the bit Snorri added to make his tale more interesting. For one, he would have had Olaf win instead of what the records say where London defeated the Vikings. There is no mention of the bridge falling down in any historical record, so maybe he tried it, but it failed. So all Snorri Sturluson did was add a happy dramatic ending to a story and then tied it into a known alliance Olaf had to make it make more sense for his audience. That fits. More than that, that's about the only way the story can fit around the existing events we have historical records for. So if London Bridge is falling down, the nursery rhyme is based upon a historical event to do with Vikings, then what it probably refers to is a failed attack by the Yom's Vikings during the winter of the year 1009, where even if they did pull down part of the bridge, they certainly did not take Southwark and London defeated them. Even then, there is a big weakness with claiming the poem was based on the saga. And that weakness is pretty brutal. You see that verse, the one that says London Bridge is broken down? Snorri Sturluson never wrote that. See, that version of the little poem by Yotar the Black first appeared in Samuel Lang's translation of the Hingskringla in 1844. Here he renders that skaldic verse as, quote, London Bridge is broken down, gold is won, and bright renown, unquote. By the time the Hingskringla was republished in 1964, the lines had been changed to, quote, London Bridge is broken down by thee, O warrior of renown, unquote. For some, a more accurate translation is, quote, You broke the Bridge of London, stout-hearted warrior, unquote, or You broke down London's bridge, unquote. And even then, some have issues with those translations. Why? The problem is the Icelandic word for bridge and the Icelandic word for London, Lundana, do not actually appear in the same line in that poem and neither of those two words appear in the first line of the poem. Lang's translation, where he moved the two words together and up to the top line and rendered it as London Bridge is broken down, has been described very politely as, quote, a spirited and exceedingly free rendering of this stanza, unquote, which is a polite academic way to say that's not what it says at all, mate. Basically, the guy who translated the Heimskringler in 1844 changed that verse to match the nursery rhyme. The nursery rhyme existed before the English version of the saga. 
The nursery rhyme seems to have been one of those types of folk dances or folk songs that spread across Europe irrespective of nation, language or culture. Some scholars have suggested that there existed in Germany and France, Scandinavia and Italy a whole genre of elaborate and simple games played by children and adults, sing-song folk dances, with the standard pattern being a capture and release mechanism. Like the song Oranges and Lemons, two people make an arch at the start of a line and the rest of the people walk through under their arch, singing a song until captured as a pair bring down the arch upon them. In the 17th century, there is the earliest reference to something based around London Bridge of a similar ilk when a character in a play refers to having danced, quote, the building of London Bridge, unquote, in her youth. Was the original London Bridges Falling Down based upon the building of the bridge? Well, maybe. In fact, we know by the 1600s there was a nursery rhyme and folk dance being sung by people in London about the building of the bridge. But given the lyrics of the rhyme, I think the only possible candidate would have been an event that took place over 260 years after Olaf Haraldsson was around. I think the incident that sparked the lyrics to that nursery rhyme are based on the events around 1283. Allow me explain, and for once briefly break the narrative version of our story to leap ahead and mention a really interesting moment in London history. See, from Christmas Day 1281 until around March 1282, London shivered through a mammoth cold snap. The whole city was covered in snow and frost. The river froze, especially upstream, and this is where we have our first recorded ice pack so thick that it allowed a person walk from Westminster to Lambeth over the frozen river. The cold weather had also damaged London Bridge at the time, with ice being responsible for bringing down five of the bridge's arches. And indeed, there was an ongoing issue with London Bridge. You see, back in 1263, there's this whole big and certainly way too long to explain right now political crisis taking place in England. And the then heir to the throne was a man called Prince Edward Longshanks and he'd seized the treasury of London and helped himself to a bunch of London's money he needed to help him wage war on behalf of his king, who was fighting with a guy called Simon de Montfort. This seizing of the money really annoyed the population of London, and they responded to this by pelting the barge of Prince Edward's mother, the Queen of England, as she tried to sail from the Tower of London to Windsor Castle. As she came up to London Bridge, the population of London pelted her with human shit and she had to sail back. Um, Prince Edward was mightily annoyed at this incident. So in 1265, when Edward and his father had destroyed Simon de Montfort and regained control over the country, the king wanted payback. And the payback actually turned out to be relatively simple. All the tolls and duties collected by the city for using the only bridge across the Thames were to go direct to his mother from now on. Queen Eleanor of Provence was to pocket every single penny of the cash raised by London Bridge. The city agreed to this, well, of course they did. But this carried on and by 1280 this was now a problem. For 15 years the monies that had been mostly used to maintain the bridge had not been around. London Bridge began to deteriorate, badly. By 1280, now King Edward I allowed the city raise monies elsewhere for its upkeep, but it's not enough. 
with the huge storm damage caused by the great freeze of 1281, he agrees that the revenues raised by the bridge should now go back to the city to maintain the thing. This for me is probably the incident that led to the actual lyrics of the nursery rhyme. The opening statement that the bridge is falling down, my fair lady, probably is a reference to Queen Eleanor of Provence. And the constant suggestion of things to use that could be, instead of, you know, just building it normally, yeah, that sounds like a nice sideways way of suggesting she didn't want to give up the revenues. And the whole thing comes across as a sly dig at the mother of a King London didn't especially like. Now, I know I'm not alone in suggesting that the nursery rhyme itself was based on the ownership of the tithes for the maintenance of London Bridge by Queen Eleanor of Provence. But if it was based on an incident in London's past, that is the most obvious candidate for me. Ultimately, for the purpose of this episode, there exists no evidence that until the translation of the Heemskringla in 1844, London Bridge is falling down was ever linked to any Viking attack or had any Viking origin ever. And ultimately it doesn't fit because the truth of the matter is that London withstood repeated attacks from Vikings upon it. King Sven Forkbeard, the Yom's Vikings, the forces of King Canute, all of them attacked London repeatedly during this era they dug trenches around the city they besieged the city and wave after wave of attack poured upon its walls apparently and the bridge but london never fell in combat london resisted london fought off the vikings london bridge never fell down here in the 11th century london bridge stood defiantly obstinately furiously London Bridge stood. And that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week for another episode of The Story of London. Um, a rough draft of this script will be hosted on Imgur and I'll include a link to get to it. I do so hope you enjoyed it. I've had a complete nightmare recording this episode and this is like the fourth time I've tried. Uh, I won't get into the technical details. I'm just glad it's out of the way. Coming up next week, a special double episode as we finally look at something I think is really important. While it's always fun to talk about kings and wars, and I really want to know, what was life like for Londoners when things were not being exciting and there wasn't hordes of Vikings trying to beat down their gates? How did London organise itself? How did London make money? What seems to have been their passions and their focus there is a lot to cover, as it was now, during this era, that London went from being a town in England to becoming the town in England. So that all comes up next episode, which hopefully I'll release two episodes on the same day, he says, foolishly, and perhaps masochistically. And if not, then I will at least try to get the first one out on Wednesday, and not a day late, because I keep losing the recordings. <sighs> anyway, thanks once again. I'll see you on on. Bye. <laughs>